Shabbat Shalom. The good news is, is we are almost done with Hebrews. We're closer than you think. We are going to be wrapping this up in our next message. And so, you know, it's nice. I, I mean, I got to be honest with you. This is, for me, been the most enjoyable series that I've done. I've enjoyed this one. I think it's really powerful uh, digging into this. And so it's kind of exciting to be able to cross the finish line. The scary part is I don't know where I'm going after this. And so it's kind of Abrahamic in that way, and that's okay. Be that as it may, today we are going to be confronted with what I would call a very extraordinary passage. In fact, this is something that has some serious depth to it. This is one of those statements that it demands your attention. It requires you to step back and spend some time to contemplate the implications of what's being conveyed. Now, I don't know about you, but I I can tell you, and I would suspect many of you have what I have. I have a repertoire of particular passages that I have clung to for years, passages that have taken me through the valley of the shadow of death, Passages that have spoken to me in those moments when I needed the Lord the most. Passages that have brought me to my knees. Passages that convict. Passages that build my faith. I have a repertoire, and I mean, don't quote me, but it's probably 50 verses. 50 plus verses I have that constantly go through my heart, through my mind, and out of my mouth all the time. They're instrumental in my prayer closet. I I, I just give you a couple examples. Psalm 103, verse 3, where the Lord actually tells us that we're not to forget all his benefits. He forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. How many of you want to live on that passage? That gives life. And all the promises of God are yes in Yeshua. And so when you read a passage like that, it doesn't say, and some of your sins will be forgiven. And some, you know, as long as it's not too hard, some of you who need healing will be healed. You can read it in Hebrew. It is very clear. All your sins will be forgiven. All your diseases will be healed. That's powerful. You know, and, and I think of other passages like John, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I think of Jeremiah 3.22, where he says, return to me, you backsliding children. I will heal your backslidings. I will do it. These are passages that I thrive on. These are passages, passages like Matthew 7 will change your religion. Matthew 7 changed mine. Where Christians and believers, you think everyone's going to get in, And and then Yeshua comes out and says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only the ones that do the will of my Father. And then depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And so I have these passages, and I mean, we could go on. Ephesians 6, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, spiritual host of wickedness. What does that do for me? It keeps me out of the flesh. It keeps me in the spiritual realm. There's more going on in the spiritual realm than there is in the fleshly realm. We need to have that perspective. There's dark powers moving against you. And it's passages like that that I recall. He trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle, Psalm 144. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 
The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. It's not a gun. It's not a, it's not a staff. It's nothing like that. But they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down um, arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And then it goes on and says this, and I live in this realm, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Yeshua. Every thought. It's training us in this war. How do I fight this war? You take every thought captive to the obedience of Yeshua. I live in this. This is the realm we need to live in. So there's, there, I have a repertoire of passages that just constantly are feeding me. They're protecting me. They're giving me strength. They're building my faith. They're taking me out of the depths of hell. And in another moment, they're dropping me to my knees in humility. The passage that we're going to look at today that we're going to be confronted with is one of the passages I have in my repertoire of life-giving scriptures. And you're going to understand why after today. It's very powerful. And I suspect you're going to add it to yours if you don't already have one. Now, looking at this, Messiah Yeshua is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. You know, what's really cool is the writer, who's obviously, you've been through the, if for most of you, you've been through the Hebrew series, you know he's prolific. This is a prolific writer. He's doing something interesting to me. See, he's circling back. Now, keep in mind, we're, at, we're in chapter 13. He's making his exit from this epistle, and yet he takes us back to chapter 1. Back to his introduction, when what he did is, is as we entered into this epistle, he blew us out of the water. I mean, that's what he did. He didn't, he didn't ease into this epistle. You begin to read it, he blows his audience completely out of the water saying, this is who Yeshua of Nazareth really is. Stand in awe. And then he comes out and the first thing, one of the first things he literally says is, Yeshua holds all things together by the word of his power. Meaning he holds the universe together by the word of his power. Who can that be but God alone? And then he builds on that. He takes us to Psalm 2. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then he builds on top of that and says, let all the angels of God worship him. And then he builds on top of that and takes you to Psalm 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The writer of Hebrews is literally saying, this is Yeshua. This is the one he's talking about called Elohim. That's mind-blowing. He's blowing his audience out of the water. And then he says this in Psalm 112. And he's quoting Psalm 112. Hang on, you'll make, this will make sense why I said that. Hebrews 112, he's quoting Psalm 102. Important. Like a cloak, you will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same. See, the writer circling back, he's reiterating a point that is critical so that we understand who this Yeshua of Nazareth really is. He says he is the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Why is that important? Why is this so awesome? Well, let me take you to the prophet Malachi. Malachi 3.6. For I am the Lord. Oh, I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Yaakov. I am Yahweh. It's the tetragrammaton. I am the Lord. And the Lord doesn't change. Now, here's the thing. As, as we look at this, This is a principle that can only be ascribed to God. To say that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, 
That is only a principle that can be ascribed to God. So who is this Yeshua? Well, he's God being the son of God. He is a chad. He is one with his father. This is the Shema. Remember, the Shema is a revelation of the relationship between the father and the son. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This revelation of this beautiful relationship between the father and the son. Now, having said that, let's get away. Let's get these things off the the grid here. And let's just look at this verse alone. Messiah Yeshua is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's more here than simply a radical deistic statement. There's a lot more here than that. In fact, I'm going to tell you, this is about God's character. This is about character. This is about power. This is about mercy. This is about love. There's a lot more going on here. And I'm going to tell you, when this becomes a reality for you, when you truly understand this, it will change the way you read the Bible. It will change the way you pray. It will change how you pray. It will change how much you pray. It will change your life. For some of you, it will change your religion. That's how impactful this is. I guarantee you, if you truly understand this, this is going to happen. And so I want to spend some time on this because it is so powerful. It is going to open the doors of the Holy Spirit in your life. The first thing I want to do is I want to talk about secessionism. How many of you are familiar with this term, secessionism? Okay, for those of you who are not, this is a term that describes the belief or the notion that many Christians, by the way, hold, by the way, uh, that the gifts of the Spirit, things like word of knowledge, things like prophecy, the speaking in different languages, what we call tongues, the gifts of healings going forth, all that power, that outpouring of the Spirit, that's done. That ceased with the apostolic age. That ceased once the Bible, as we know it, once John was done with his revelation, that ceased to exist after the Bible was in its full completeness because once that's done, we don't need these other things. Those things were simply utilized to establish the church, to kind of kickstart it. If you were in business, you would look at it, this is the initial capital. For a business to get off the ground, they got to have investors. This is the initial capital. But after that, then we don't need the investors. This is kind of the mindset of cessationism. And so there are secessionists that will absolutely tell you, well, God can do anything. It's not that they don't believe that. God's not all powerful. They don't believe that. They believe that. It's just he doesn't move like that. He doesn't move like that anymore. The problem with this ideology is this. Messiah Yeshua is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's your problem. Well, where am I going with this? Well, let me take you to the Gospel of Mark. Let's start here. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Yeshua called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude. You understand? This is an absolute fact. It's been recorded. And as the story goes on, you'll see evidence. Yes, he did. Yeshua has compassion. We now get to see Yeshua's heart for his people, right? And if he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, I would only come to the conclusion that he is still compassionate today. Is that significant? Well, it's pretty significant 
When the devil's whispering in your ear and telling you, no, he doesn't care about you. No, he's not going to be compassionate towards you. Oh, that was for other people. That becomes very significant. This is what happened to Israel. Don't be fooled. Israel, all this power and compassion God showed Israel. Oh, I'm going to protect my children from the seven last plagues. Supernaturally, by the way. I'm going to instruct them to slay the lamb, to put the blood on the doorpost. I'm going to spare them my wrath. Show them my compassion so that they don't die. Then I'm going to take them out of Egypt. They experience all these things. Taken out of Egypt. Brought through, supernaturally, mind you, miraculously brought through the Red Sea on dry ground only to turn back and watch their enemies fall before them. And the very first thing that happens is Israel looks around and says, really, have you brought us out into the wilderness to kill us with hunger? To kill us and our children? This is what you have done? Make no mistake about it. The devil repackages it and sells the same thing to you and whispers in your ear, well, no, you know what? God's not going to help you in this situation. There, there really is no hope. Or it's beyond him. Or as a secessionist, well, God just doesn't move that way anymore. It's absolutely demonic. This is who he is. He is compassionate. We can rely upon compassion. Now, continuing on, we're going to find out. Now, listen to me. We're going to find out what prompted this emotion within our master, Yeshua, to be compassionate. Something you want to pay close attention to. It goes on and says, because they have now continued with me three days and have had nothing to eat. There's not a whisper in this passage whatsoever of anyone in that crowd complaining that they hadn't eaten. Or we we followed this crazy babbler out into the wilderness And now look at, we have no food. He only brought us out here to kill us. So that's what their forefathers said. Not a whisper. These people care about one thing. All they want is the Messiah. They want Yeshua. You know, you you, you think about Deuteronomy 3. Man's not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God or Yeshua. They were literally walking that out. That was their life. That was their sustenance. Isn't it fascinating? There's nothing about, okay, one day goes by, okay, you know, his teachings are awesome. Uh, He's been doing some crazy miracles. I appreciate this guy, but, you know, after it, we haven't ate. And there is no food in sight. Is anyone getting worried yet? I mean, come on. You start thinking about these. There's nothing. Nobody cares. There's not a whisper. Two days go by. Nobody's eating anything. And guess what? None of them have left because they are following him. They have him. They are seeking first the kingdom of God and nothing else matters. They are not concerned about their well-being. They're not concerned whether they're going to have enough. They're simply following their shepherd. Absolutely mind-blowing. This is so powerful. But it was these people he showed compassion to. I wonder, are we this diligent in seeking him? We wonder why we don't see powers happening today, why we're not seeing miracles, why we're not living in the book of Acts today. Are you like these men? Are you following him with no concern whatsoever for your flesh? No matter what cost, you're willing to follow him, to listen to him, you crave him, he's the most important thing, and if you died, it would be okay because you're with him. This is what it takes. 
to evoke that emotion from Yeshua, that compassion. It's incredible. Moving on, we read this. And so Yeshua says, if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way. You know, I can't help but think about what Yeshua says in Matthew 6. He says, you know, don't worry about what you eat or about what you drink or about what you will put on. He goes on and says, for the Father knows you have need of all of these things. I'm going to say that again. He knows you have need of all of these things. How many times in our life have we not appreciated he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we really, in our own minds, like, he doesn't really know that I have this need, so I'm going to do this. I got to take, if nobody takes care of me, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And he says, we're not supposed to, what we are supposed to be worried about, what we're supposed to be concerned about is our faith in him, knowing he knows our needs. Whatever we need, Yeshua knows the need. And it's amazing that he actually identified, the need is food. We don't eat, we're going to die. Yeshua knows they're not going to make it. I mean, he says it. He knows they're not going to make it. They'll faint on the way. He knows their needs. Continuing on verse 4, then his disciples answered him, oh, this is good. How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Does this sound familiar? I mean, this, go back to the wilderness experience. Moses even saying, how could I possibly feed all these people meat? Moses saying it's impossible, can't happen. His disciples, now with Yeshua, are saying the exact same thing. How can we do this? Verse five, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before them, and they set uh, them before the multitude. Moving on to verse 7. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to them also, or set them also before them. So they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets, not seven loaves. They took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. In other words, they started out, they, they were left with more than they originally began. And in other words, this was a total supernatural miracle. He literally fed them bread out of nothing. He gave them bread from nothing. He multiplied what they had. It was a total supernatural miracle. And they were all filled. If in fact Yeshua is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he was willing to feed the multitude in the wilderness who were following him at all costs. Will he not do the same for us today? And so for those of you who are worrying, well, what about my job? Do I have job security? Do I have financial security? Nay, I say, do I have food security? As they call it, literally, officially food security. You got to follow him. Now is the time you need to learn how to, you know what? I'm not going to trust anything, any of those things. I'm not going to rely upon those things. The Lord knows my need. The problem is many of us don't believe it because we live our lives that prove it. Our actions prove that we really don't believe it. We really don't believe he was the same yesterday, today, and forever because we'd be a completely different body. I think of Philippians uh, 4.19, my God shall supply all our needs according to his riches and glory. This is where we need to be. 
Now, I want to jump to the gospel of Luke, and I want to build on this. And he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Verse 7, and he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. What are you doing in my house so late? Go home. I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. And obviously the lesson here, at least thus far, is don't you dare stop pursuing the Lord for a moment. It's I don't get my answer. That's it. I'm going to go do it my way. I knew the Lord wasn't going to respond. He's expecting me to do it my way anyways. You pray without ceasing. You want to know another scripture in my repertoire? Pray without ceasing. Pray, Luke 18, verse 1. Pray and do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. Trust in him. When we do not trust in him, we are saying, no, you don't know my needs, and no, you can't provide. This is scary. I mean, you get into this topic, you get into some of these scriptural principles, and they really strip you down. All the deception, all the lies that we experience, that we tell ourselves, that we listen to the enemy of. Moving on, verse 9. I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. In other words, I love this. Guess what? We have access to the throne room. I cannot overemphasize this enough. We truly have access to go and to be able to communicate to the king of glory. And when you have that, anything is possible. Yeshua goes on. In verse 11, he's going to give us some perspective here in regard to his heart. If a son asks for bread... Uh, from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? It's almost like, you know, I, I read this, it's like Yeshua is insinuating here, why are you not asking? Do you expect the father to repay you once you ask with evil? Is that our expectation? Who do we think he is? Has his character been compromised? Is he not the same? Has he changed from the God that we read about in the Bible that is so faithful? Verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so notice Yeshua reveals here the Father's heart. His heart is to grant our request. His heart is to come to our rescue. As any father here, when their child comes to them and asks them something, and especially, specifically, when they, your children ask you something that pleases you, and you actually step back and are thankful, man, I am glad my child asked such a thing. Do you hesitate to give that child what they asked for? They have brought you joy. And so this is the reality of Yeshua's revealing his heart in this matter. This is who he is. This is who we can trust. 
we can trust his character. Now, I want to highlight one point here. And this kind of takes us back. But it's this point that, you know, here we have that the Father, he gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Let me ask you a question, especially in light of these cessationists, right? Who believe the power of the Spirit has ceased, that we, we, don't, we don't have that anymore. What does the Holy Spirit do? We're being called to ask for it. What does the Spirit of God do? Well, it brings the word of knowledge. It brings instruction. It brings truth. It brings strength. Oh, it brings prophecy. All of these things. Read 1 Corinthians 12. Read all the things that the Spirit is responsible for. It's responsible for the manifestation of languages that testify of the greatness of Yeshua. It's responsible for all the healings that we read about in Scripture, they're attributed to the Holy Spirit through the name of Yeshua. So when, when Paul has handkerchiefs, as I mentioned last week, being brought from his body because it's, it has the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and these handkerchiefs are being brought to their people, and they're instantaneously being healed, and demons are driven out, that's the Spirit of God. That's what that is. And that is what we are to be asking for. You know, should, should we ask and not expect? Should we pray and not be heard? Mark 140. Now a leper came to Yeshua, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And the thing I love about this is, again, you know, we talk about the hearts of these men and women, children that were in the wilderness They were willing to go without food as long as it takes just to be with the king. Look at the heart of this guy because there's there's a common denominator here with all this power moving through that we see that's happening in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. There's a common denominator of the people who are receiving this power. And it's found in this guy right here. He comes and what does he do? He kneels down. He humbles himself literally in the sight of the Lord. He humbles himself in Yeshua. And then look at what comes out of his mouth. If you are willing, you can make me clean. There's no debate here about his power. He confesses, you are the one that I need to come to. You're the one that can take care of my issue. I'm a leper. I'm banned. I'm outside the camp. I'm the off-scourging of Israel. But you can help me if you are willing. Well, let's look in verse 41. Then Yeshua, oh, moved with compassion. He is moved with compassion again. And I'm telling you, when you're distraught like this leper, when you're plagued like this leper, know this, Yeshua is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If I'm reading this passage and it was possible with this leper, it is possible with you. This is a biblical fact. And so Yeshua is moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing to be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, this is the power of his word. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. If Yeshua is willing to do this then, is he not willing to do this now? Or do you believe he's changed? Do you believe he's different? See, because this is a different generation, so maybe he's changed. We're living in a much, 
you know, uglier generation today. So he's not going to be willing to do something like this. I'm telling you right now, there's so many lies that come in to sow doubt into your heart so that when you pray, it's completely meaningless because you cannot pray prayers of doubt and expect absolute response on something that requires total faith. It is impossible. You know, I, I, I feel sorry for those who have fallen into this cessationist mindset the mindset that, no, God's done doing that because they're being stripped of the power and the riches and the beauty of relationship. Because ultimately, you strip all this stuff away. This is about relationship with God. The beauty of that relationship. Now you say the benefits that come with having a relationship with him. I want to take you to Matthew 19. You know, this is, an, and I'm showing you several passages here in my repertoire. These are, these are passages that I hang upon. And many of you know how many times I quote Matthew 19, where the young rich man, he comes to Yeshua, you know, what must I do to be saved? He goes to this Yeshua basically at the end of the day. He tells him, sell everything you have, rich man. Get rid of it. Come and follow me. Like these people in the wilderness, willing to leave everything, willing to starve to death just to follow me. No, you come and follow me. Well, we know the story. The rich man, he goes away devastated. He's broken. At which point we learn this. Then Yeshua said to his disciples, surely I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Last thing I want to hear as a believer is that this is going to be hard. We don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear narrow is the gate, difficult is the way. What I want to hear is I'm getting in no matter what. That makes me feel good. And, you know, there are some pastors that do a great job at preaching that, unfortunately. Going out and deceiving the masses. We don't want to hear this. But Yeshua says it is hard. Well, when Yeshua uses these terms, what does he mean it's hard? How hard is it? Well, we find out as we continue. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Yeshua just said, it is literally impossible. Try to take your finger and put it through the eye of the needle. If I was just to tell you, it, you know, it's interesting. Yeshua doesn't use that analogy. He could have said, you know, try to put your finger through the eye of the needle. His disciples would respond, that's, that's crazy. That's absurd. He goes for like one of the largest animals in the land. A camel. It's a joke. It's so preposterous. It's so out of the question. There can be no debate about what Yeshua is conveying. In other words, you can't get in. It's impossible, which is exactly what we go on to read. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? They understood what he was saying. But Yeshua looked at them and said to them, With men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You understand, you can't do this. It is impossible for you to enter into the kingdom of God of your own accord or through anyone else or through any other pastor, or through any other teacher. It's not going to happen. It's only with God. It's only by confessing Yeshua. It's only by calling on his name. And with him, the impossible now becomes possible. It becomes, okay, so if this is true, if Yeshua is the same, God is the same, yesterday, today, and forever, Yeshua's teachings are true, and he tells us that with God all things are possible, that means all things, whatever situation you're up against, 
I don't care how much death people have been speaking into your life. I don't care how precarious the situation is. This is where you need to go. You need to remember, no, with him, it is possible. I can go to him. There's hope. There's help. Again, doesn't matter what you're going through. There's hope. Let me take you back to the gospel of Mark in chapter 9. The father father presents himself. He has a son that's riddled by a demon. And nobody can help him, including the disciples. They couldn't help him. He comes to Yeshua and says, Lord, Lord, if you can do anything, help my son. Listen to what he says. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Now, I'm showing you this passage in conjunction with what we just read in Matthew 19, because see, there's a requirement. For that statement to become true in your life, that with God, all things are possible, you have to believe. It hinges upon your faith. It hinges upon, I believe that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I believe that. You don't believe it, you'll experience nothing. And it's amazing conversations I've had with cessationists and, and them saying, you know what? It's clear that God doesn't work in the power of the spirit like he used to do in the book of Acts because I can look around and I'm just not seeing those things. And I'm like, and what they are seeing though is a crazy circus show and these extreme Pentecostal movements of people rolling around on the floor barking like dogs and doing all sorts of other bizarre stuff. So they see that and they see, so this is, this is just phony. But I'm, I'm not seeing the real McCoy. I'm gonna tell you this, you need to go and you need to study exactly what the gospel say. You need to listen to what's being conveyed here that you have to believe. Because my response is if we are not seeing these things, we have a faith problem. We have a problem of faith. Two things make Yeshua marvel. They're both the same topic though. It's faith. On one side, you have those Yeshua's marveling about their faith is so great, he hasn't even seen it in, in, in Israel. You know, uh, Matthew chapter 8 in the centurion. You've not seen a great faith like that, not even in Israel. And guess what happened in centurion? Exactly what he asked for came to pass. But you go to Mark 6, verse 6, and guess what you find out? It says Yeshua could not do many works there. He couldn't do mighty work. He was prevented. Now, this is the king of glory, able to do anything. And he could not do mighty works there because of their unbelief. So yes, your faith in Yeshua, in his words and believing and knowing that he is the same yesterday, today, forever, it's going to change your life. It will change your perspective. It will change how you read the Bible. It will change how you pray. It'll change all of it when we believe this passage. That being said, we're going to cover one more verse today, and it is verse 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Now, there's more to the verse here, but I just kind of want to interrupt this for a moment because I want to deal with the statement alone. I just want to get this alone for a second because, you know, you think about what the writer is warning. This is a warning. He's in his exit of this, of this epistle. He wants to leave his audience with a severe warning. Don't fall into this trap. And when you look at the New Testament, guess what? The New Testament is riddled with this very warning. 
And so he's fallen into line with all the other apostles that we read. And even with Yeshua's teachings, he's fallen into line. I'll give you an example from the apostle Paul. 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So here you have the, I mean, how scary is it when you're living in this warning? When you're actually seeing this happen, when people are being picked off, One by one, I'm seeing believers being picked off. They're being seduced by seductive spirits. They're alluring. You know, Yeshua's statement in Matthew 24, if it were possible, even the elect will be deceived. That's That's a kind of deception you don't want to hear that exists. I don't want Satan to come to me as an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. We're declaring the way of the Lord. And this is exactly what is happening. And so the deception is real. There's no question about it. So as the writer is here, he's saying, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Be aware. I mean, this falls in line with all the other ones. I could, you know, what would he, I think I mentioned, what was it, last week, week before? Peter. In, in Second Peter, right, chapter 2, he, he talks about as there were false prophets among the people. And we can go and read about it. Read the book of Jeremiah. So also there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly, they're going to bring in destructive heresies. And he says, many are going to follow their destructive ways. Many, they're going to be taken out. And Paul warns Titus, beware of Jewish fables. As we know, there were believing Jews in the first century that were wreaking havoc on the church. And again, I say believing Jews that did not line up with the apostles. And there was a schism, and there was fracturing. But the problem is, is now you have this fracturing. Well, they're going to build up disciples. No, you follow Yeshua, you come with me. I mean, it's a disaster. From the first century on, it's chaos. It's war. Satan knows the power of the gospel. Now, the writer goes on and says, For it is good that the heart be established by grace. I'll never miss an opportunity, at least not intentionally, to talk about grace. Paul says in Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Yeshua. And so here's the thing. You want to consider yourself, you want to be good and faithful students of the word? Every time you come across charis in the Greek or hen in the Hebrew, you need to replace it with Yeshua. If you want to truly understand the full impact, we should be reading it this way, for it is good that the heart be established by Yeshua. That is critical. If we are not founded on the grace on Yeshua, we're as good as dead, we're as good as lost, we are open for deception. It's open season. You will not make it. He is the rock that we need to be founded upon. Then he goes on and says this, So we're to be established by Yeshua, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. What does the writer mean here? Because now we're getting into, we're getting into a little bit of controversial land where there's a little bit of debate. Where is the writer of Hebrews coming from in this statement? Is he referring to the first century uh, absolute craziness that erupted 
with you had meatitarians versus vegetarians? Is he, is he referring to, you know, Romans chapter 14? We know these things existed. We know uh, in, in 1 Timothy 4.1, listen to this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience, seared with the hot iron, forbidding to marry, oh, commanding to abstain from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Is, is, is this where the writer of Hebrews is going? Is, is this the context of what he's saying? Now, certainly, without a debate, this stuff is happening in the first century where this dichotomy is being presented that, hey, you know, the, the, the idea of you, you have Gnostics, the Gnostic Christians, and we still have Gnostic Gospels today. And they're just, you can read them and you can see how far off they really are. But Gnostic Christianity was Christianity mixed with this philosophical craziness of Gnosticism, and it infected the mass of the church. It was very popular. And one of the things the Gnostics were, were vegetarians. They're reaching a higher element of spiritual enlightenment by removing all what they would call death from their diet. And so it was seen as a spiritual advantage. So you have these Gnostic groups. You had Jewish Christian groups uh, running around and promoting this. You know, I'll just give you an example. I'll take you to Epiphanius's Panarion. And he just goes guns blazing against all the, I mean, he absolutely comes unglued with all the heresy that's going on. And he calls out these different groups, one of which was the Nasareans. And so listen to this. And so the, uh, though they were Jews who kept all the Jewish observances, they would not offer sacrifice or eat meat. And their eyes, it was unlawful to eat meat or make sacrifices with it. And so this was a Jewish Christian group. And so you have these factions going out. They existed. We have the Ebionite movement. And I'll read you this. And again, the Lord himself says, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Now going back to obviously Luke 22. And he did not simply say Passover, but this Passover. Now listen to his terms here, Epiphanius' terms. So that no one could play with it in his own sense. A Passover, as I said, was meat roasted with fire and the rest, but to destroy deliberately the true passage, these people have altered its text. You know, it's so funny. It's crazy, actually, because you look at what was going on in the first century, people maligning and twisting scripture. It's still happening today. There's nothing new in regard to this. It just, it kind of blows your mind, which is evident to everyone from the expression that accompanies accompanies it, and it ran together there, sorry about that, into verse 62, and represented the disciples as saying, where will thou uh, that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he's supposedly saying, did I really desire to eat meat at this Passover with you? And in other words, what, what Epiphanius is saying is that you had the Ebionites coming on the scene, and what was recorded in the gospel, how I desire to keep this Passover with you, they came on and said, no, what he actually meant was, did I really desire to eat meat at this Passover? You can't find it in any Greek manuscript. It's completely made up. But this is what they have done. And so I show you this, and there's other examples I could give 
in regard to changing the diet of John the Baptist from locusts, which is meat, from locusts to cakes, simply by playing with the Greek from moving from akris to increase. I mean, so here's the thing. The first century is riddled with this craziness of vegetarians coming in saying, no, you can't eat meat. And Paul deals with this explicitly in Romans 14. This stuff is really happening. The question is, is this what the writer is talking about in Hebrews 13, 9? For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied by them. Follow me. Because while the writer could address everything that we know existed, there's no debate, and has been addressed in the New Testament, this is not what the writer is dealing with. The writer, just like verse 8, the preceding verse where he reverts back to chapter 1, is now reverting back to chapter 9. There's something he wants to reiterate again. And this, follow me on this, and this will play out. In Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse 8, The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Obviously talking about the priesthood fulfilling the ceremonial sacrifices. It couldn't make him perfect. We know because the conscience. Read Hebrews 10, right? Moving on to verse 10. Concerned only with foods. You remember reading this? Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, fleshly ordinances, imposed until the time of reformation. You remember what this chapter was all about? It was about Yom Kippur. The whole context of this is explicit. It's it's Yom Kippur. Well, let's go back to Hebrews 13.9, and you're going to see something interesting. Because the whole context of this is Yom Kippur. And that allows us, it draws us so that we understand exactly what he is saying. So, continue on, there's more in this verse. When we read, which, though, which uh, have not pro, uh, profited those who have been occupied with them. And then it goes on to say this. What happened to my verse here? Oh, it was up there, I'm sorry, I didn't see that. So it was not... Profited those who have been occupied with them. Stay with me. I'll get there. And then we go to verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. This is explicitly Yom Kippur. His whole context here, you can go back to Leviticus 16.27. It talks about how those animals, they couldn't partake of them. They could not partake of that sacrifice. And so what ended up happening is they were burned outside the camp. And that's exactly where we need to go. Moving on to verse 12, the writer says, Therefore Yeshua also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore let us us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. And hopefully you can interpret it. Everything I just said and everything I just laid out here is very simple. What the writer is laying out is he's like, don't get caught up in with these foods and referring to the sacrifices, the ceremonial sacrifices that were given on Yom Kippur. Our rock is Yeshua. 
And it's literally a parallel passage from chapter 9. And so we need to be founded on him. And we need to believe uh, the very statement that we talked about today, that he is able, okay? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he was able to do all these amazing things, he was able to forgive our sins, if he able to care for us and miraculously do so, he's able to do it today. With all this, this, this word is so powerful. What's gonna divide us with the sheep from the goats is the faith. That's what's gonna divide. It's the faith. And true faith draws you into righteousness. True faith draws you into repentance. True faith will draw you into prayer and fasting, things that your flesh hates. But you will so desire to be so close to him and you will be so convicted over those struggles in your life that you're having that you will run to fasting. You will know this is where I need to be. It is an awesome thing. And in fact, I can tell you weekly, it's the best part of the week for me. When you get into this weekly, it is the best part of the week. You want to shed that ugliness. You want to get out. You want to draw close to him. Amen.